Good morning. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and grab those and turn to Acts chapter 4. First, I want to address what you just saw. If you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, or if you're a guest today, you're wondering what in the world was that, right? Um, here's, what that here's what that's been about. Uh, a couple moments ago, our ushers came by and passed plates to collect the morning offering. And yes, we know that's awkward, okay? We feel that. If you're a guest in here today and all of a sudden there's this place coming by and people are putting money in, you don't know what's going on, that's a really kind of nervous, awkward experience for you. And, and secondly, we believe that there are families in our midst who do belong to First Baptist North who don't understand what the Bible says about this. And so it's awkward for them, right? And so we have this idea presented to us in 2 Corinthians 9 that we do not give reluctantly or under compulsion, right? But we, get, we are cheerful givers. And to do that, we must understand what giving is about. And so in this, we believe that this facet of our service order, this, this passing the plates, um, creates kind of a resistance to the things of Jesus. Number one, if you're a guest, it already puts, it kind of puts the walls up. It makes you nervous. It makes you uncomfortable before you even get to hear what Jesus says in his word. And if you're, if you're a believer, but you don't understand what's going on, then, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And both of these keep you from more and more of Christ. And we will aggressively pursue anything around here that keeps you from Jesus. Right? And so here's our strategy. Starting in January 2016, there's no more passing the plates in this service. Okay, so there's only five more times we're going to do that. And, and we're going to have boxes in place in the back um, for those who call First Baptist North home, those who are followers of Jesus Christ and understand the command to be given, that, that will be your place to worship. That will be your act to do it there. Okay, but in order to help you understand why to do this, then we're going to take the next few Sundays and have these short little instructional videos to help you understand what the Bible says about giving. Right? And so we believe that at the end of this we'll have a, a body of believers who fully more fully understand what the Bible says about this act of worship, and we'll have guests coming into our midst who will be more open to receive what the Word of God has because we haven't already made them nervous or uncomfortable before we get to this point in the service. Um, and so that's what we're doing. That's the purpose of these videos, right? If you're, if you're a guest, I can assure you, we don't talk about money that much, right? Um, we're we're going to do this for six weeks, and we're going to move on. Okay? And, and the reason we're doing videos is because we didn't want to devote an entire sermon to that topic. Um, and, and we're actually doing this with you in mind, okay? So, um, so please, uh, take part in this. If, you're, if, you, if you belong here, if you're a member here, man, soak these up. Um, we're going to send them out to you via email throughout the week. We're going to have them online for you. We're going to have a brochure that kind of wraps up all the teaching. We're going to use our new members' classes going forward. Um, this is a resource for you, okay? Um, and and we're, we're grateful to go on this journey with you. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. Um, and, and for our time in the sermon, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. Uh, and if you've got one of those, don't worry about finding it. Just go to page 761, and you'll be right where we are. Um, and before we jump into Acts 4, uh, let's, let's have a word of prayer. So, Father, we're grateful for your word today. We're grateful for the power of it. We're grateful for uh, just your goodness in giving it to us. And so, God, I just pray that um, everything that we brought in today, everything that we've experienced, everything that has happened in our lives uh, this week or this morning that could keep us from hearing from you that you would just conquer all of it. God, in these next few moments that you would just speak mightily through your word. Um, that we'd understand uh, just how important this is uh, because of the huge act that you perform in Acts 5. Um, I pray that you do all this to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in such a uh, politically correct world, it can be uh, kind of surprising and refreshing when you see genuine authenticity, right? Uh, this last week, we were getting ready to go to small groups, Tuesday night, and um, we're getting the girls ready, and Corinne decided that she wanted to style Hattie's hair a little bit. 
And this is always kind of an internal struggle at our house because Hattie never wants her hair styled. She wants her hair down. Hattie's our seven-year-old, if you don't know. And so I hear the struggle in the bathroom, right? The debate going on back and forth. And, and Hattie really doesn't like how this works and all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, when she comes out, I've got to make sure that she thinks she looks awesome. And so she comes out. I'm like, Hattie, you look so pretty, okay? And, and so we go out and we get in the van. I've already got Jim in the van. Jim is our four-year-old. And Hattie comes walking into the van and Jim goes, man, Hattie, your hair looks funny. Just completely killed everything I was trying to do, right? And I said, I said, no, 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 Jim, no, like her hair looks really pretty, Jim. You gotta, you can't say those things. And she, she goes, um, um, okay, Hattie, your hair looks pretty, right? And then there's about six seconds of silence, and she goes, no, your hair looks funny. Like, she just couldn't, she couldn't do it. She just couldn't be inauthentic, right? And that's just Gemma, right? And this is gonna serve her well when she's older in some situations, and not serve her very well in others. But that's her, right? But I've noticed, right, that when kids are younger. They have less fear of being authentic. Um, they tell you exactly what they think, exactly what they feel. When Hattie was three, we'd go through the same uh, tiring dance every day. I'd be leaving to go to work, and she would always block and stand in front of the door and say, don't, don't go to work. I stay home and play with me. Don't go to work every single day without clockwork. Until one day I was dropping her off at a grandparent's house, and it was about 1.30 in the afternoon. This was the time of her nap. And I said, okay, Hattie, you, first thing you've got to do here is you've got to take a nap. It's nap time. And she walked up to me really slowly and gave me this really soft, gentle hug. And then she said, I think it's time for you to go to work, Daddy. Right? She considered the nap idea and said, you know what? You're not needed here anymore. Why don't you go ahead and get on out of here, right? And, and authenticity is, is something we find in children. But it's also huge in God's eyes. Right? Because he knows the temptation that we face. Right? That this temptation where we put on display for all to see all these outer actions. That what I do and where I go and what I say and how I dress and what I post on social media all make up this profile of myself that I want to present to you. And what you're doing is you're allowing us to see the parts of you that you want us to see. But deeper underneath lies your heart and your will and your mind. And this is your soul. This is where you make decisions. This is where you worship. This is where the motivation of all your actions come from. And this is where Jesus wants to work. That's what he's interested in, right? Because there are social settings where, where pure authenticity maybe wouldn't be beneficial for you, but in the church, in your life of following God, you must know and be known because you were created for risky, true intimacy. Right? Some people walk around and try to act like they've got it all together, like they have all the answers when daily they struggle with these heavy doubts that they just don't want to admit to anyone they have. Some people put on these masks that make them look very religious or pious or holy when the truth is that in the times when they're alone, they, they wrestle with the demon or sin that they're just too embarrassed to admit, so they never seek help on it. Some people masks are really deliberate. They, every activity, every relationship they have is meant to portray an image or a message, and nothing in their life is real. And the result is this shallow, empty existence. So to experience life, to have true growth, to have a true connection with God and others, authenticity is needed. We've got to be real people with real failures and real successes. We need to be real people with real flaws who've experienced real grace. And the one person that we simply can't fool in this is Jesus. Because he sees through all of it. And yet, for as long as humans have existed, we have convinced ourselves that somehow, in some way, we will fool God. Right? That we'll put on a little show, we'll dance a little dance, we'll distract him from the truth about us. And this is the height of human foolishness. 
that we would ever be so prideful to think that we could get something by God, that we could trick him or fool him when he knows us better than we know ourselves. And we're going through the book of Acts together as a church this fall, and we've almost completed the first four chapters. Right? And so far, the only real threat to the first church that we find in Acts has come from outside the church. Right? It was the religious leaders of the day. It was the temple guard and the priests. It's that same group who arrested Jesus, who came in Acts 4 and arrested Peter and John and then threatened all the church to never speak again in the name of Jesus. But this, to this point in the story, the church has been pretty awesome. They've done everything Jesus commanded them to do to this point. They've created this awesome community, which we'll hear more about today. And when faced with threats and persecution, they respond wonderfully. But today we'll see where all of that changes. And in an instant, one instant, there's trouble within. So look at Acts chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 32. <clears throat> Acts 4.32 says this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy persons among them, and for from, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so Luke paints a picture here for us of this first church having this amazing unity. They weren't just unified in purpose and in direction and spirit. They were actually literally unified among their possessions. And there was no need among them because we're told that nobody saw their stuff as their stuff. Right? Nobody got possessive, and so whenever they saw that someone in their midst had a need, one of them would just go and sell uh, what they had to share from their abundance and, to, and give it to those in need. Now, how do you think that would play out in churches today? Right, we, we think about we have a benevolence offering that helps people in needs. We'd come up here and say, you know what, we've been made aware of some needs in our midst this week, so a couple of you need to go sell your cars and bring us all the money from that. I think we'd have a lot of takers on that. But we're told in verse 36 and 37 that a man named Barnabas sells a field. And land was incredibly valuable in the eyes of the Jewish people. This was a huge cost. But Barnabas sold that field and he brought all the money that he received from that field. And he lays it out at the feet of the apostles, the leaders of the church. Now, I'll be honest with you. It's hard to read these verses without feeling some level of conviction. Right? Without, without going back through your life and your mind and wondering... What's the biggest thing I've ever given up for the kingdom of God? And I'm not going to take that conviction from you this morning. I'm sorry. I invite you to feel that. I invite you to think through that. I invite you to question your devotion because I think all that's healthy. But that said, I, I don't think that's the overarching point of this story. I think Luke paints us this beautiful picture of the church so that we can better understand what we find in Acts 5 because the first part of Acts 5 at first read doesn't make any sense at all. Look at Acts 5, starting in verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, so Ananias sees Barnabas, he sees others in the other believers committing these acts of generosity, and he's moved. He's moved, so he decides, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go sell a piece of my property. But then, then he and his wife begin to talk about it. And they come to this realization. 
man, this is a big chunk of change. This is a lot of money. Well, how about we just give part of it? Well, it's not a terrible idea, right? We, we aren't ever told here that God told them to sell this field in the first place. So whatever they give is voluntary. Whatever they give would be appreciated. But there's something about the phrasing here in verse 2 that suggests something more sinister. That this idea that they kept back part of the money, it reads as if they're hiding it. And then Ananias goes and he lays out the rest of the money at the apostles' feet. See, my theory is this. Here's my theory. I think Ananias was there when Barnabas brought the money in. I think he was there and I think he saw Barnabas lay all the money he got from the field at the feet of the apostles. And I think he saw their approving faces and, and their grateful attitudes and he heard them thank Barnabas. And he may have even overheard people speaking glowingly about Barnabas and what he did. And seeing all that, Ananias decides, you know, I'm too going to go sell a field. But then when all the money's sitting right in front of him, for the first time he begins to calculate the cost of the sacrifice. And he begins to think about all that he could do with the money instead of what, all that they could do with it. Right? But you see, if he keeps all this for himself, there'd be nobody who thought highly of him. If he kept it all for himself, there'd be no praise. If he kept it all for himself, no positive attention or glowing speech would ever come his way and so he comes up with a plan let's just give part of it he tells his wife there's nothing wrong with that but you see he still wanted to give the appearance of giving all of it and so he mimics everything that Barnabas did he walks in just like Barnabas did he lays out his gift just like Barnabas did at the apostles feet in this big glowing public display and now he waits expecting to hear all the gratitude and all the praise and all the compliments that come Barnabas' way, only that's not quite what he hears. Look at verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. And that escalated quickly, didn't it? Instead of saying, Ananias, thank you for your gracious gift. You'll be blessed. Peter asked some questions. Ananias, tell me, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you would ever think of lying to the Holy Spirit? It's a huge question, one we'll, we'll revisit in a bit. But I love the really practical questions he asked him in verse 4. Ananias, wasn't this your land? And after you sold it, wasn't that your money? Who, who told you that you were going to have to give all of it? Why, why wouldn't you just come in and say, I want to give you a portion of it? But no, you came in and laid it before us as if you were giving us every last penny. You came in and put on the big show and you didn't lie to us in doing that. You lied to God. And then Ananias is struck dead on the spot he collapses right there in front of everyone and dies and they don't mourn for him and they don't weep for him and they don't put on a funeral some young men come in wrap him up take him out and bury him quick clean and final you see nobody's told Sapphira what happened and she's about to come walking in in verse 7 and check out that exchange verse 7 about three hours later his wife comes in not knowing what happened Peter asked her tell me is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land yes she said that's the price Peter said to her, 
How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. All right, so Sapphira comes strolling up, oblivious as to what happened earlier, and Peter asks her, hey, by the way, is this really all the money you got from that land? And man, if you're in that room at that moment, you're thinking, lady, answer that question the right way. Do not say what your husband said, but she says confidently, yeah, that's the price. And Peter says, how, how could you have guys thought of this? How could you have agreed together to lie to God like this? The same thing that happened to your husband is now going to happen to you. And she drops dead right in front of him. And the young men, having just returned from burying Ananias, well, now they got another body. So they carry her out and bury her by her husband. And what might be the great understatement of the Bible? Luke tells us in verse 11 that great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about this. And I would think so. I would think so. Because there's always a few questions that come up when we read this story, aren't there? Did they really have to die? I mean, that seems a bit harsh, no? Am I the only one that thinks that's a little bit of an overreaction? What, why such the strong reaction? What's the point of this story? We see this was an all-out war for the hearts of these early believers. And here's what I mean. We've got to understand the background and context of this. We're now in Acts chapter 5. Here's what we've seen so far in Acts. The church was born in Jerusalem. It began under the leadership of 12 Jewish men. It exploded in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, a festival celebrated by Jewish people. Thousands more are added in chapter 3 after a crowd listens to Peter and John in the Jewish temple. Right? And so all these believers, all the members of this first church in Jerusalem have been born into, ingrained into, brought up in, and trained in a highly religious environment. And in that religious environment, the focus of everything was on what you did. Because it was to the Jewish people that God had given the Old Testament law. Now we must understand, the law was beautiful. It painted a picture of the holiness of God and a life that pleases Him. But what happened was that human beings took that law and made it nothing more than a checklist. Well, it says here, I need to do this, 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 and this, and I can't do this, this, and this, and after that, God should be pleased with me because I checked off all the boxes. Now, God told them again and again and again in the Old Testament, he was looking for more than outer obedience. The Old Testament is littered with verses like the one we find in Psalm 119, 1 and 2. When the psalmist tells us, Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes. Okay, that first part, Judaism had that down. The second part is what they missed. And blessed are they who seek him with all of their heart. The psalmist is telling us, you'll be blessed by the Lord, not just by observing the law, though that's good, but you'll be blessed by the Lord by seeking after God with all of your heart. Later in Psalm 119, it says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. But the Jewish people miss this. Right? If you read through the Old Testament, you'll find a lot of their history, they didn't even follow the law. Right? And, they, and you see that they pay the price for that when Jerusalem's destroyed and they're exiled to Babylon. But, but what happens is that there's a passage of time after the exiles return and the temple's rebuilt and Judaism's back in place and it's called the dark period. 
It's the dark period between the Old Testament and New Testament where for 400 years, nobody heard from God. Nobody. He stopped raising up prophets. He stopped sending people to speak on his behalf. There's no fresh message, no new word from the Lord. And so what was left is in that 400 years, the Jewish people had the law, they had the Psalms and the Proverbs, and they had the words of the prophets. And something happened over that 400 years. We don't know how quickly it happened, but we know it happened because by the time that Jesus arrives on the scene, the heart of Judaism is gone. It's gone. And what was left in its place was a religious system based entirely off the Old Testament law and then 613 additional laws that they wrote in place. And the focus of this entire system was external. The focus was all on the outside. The focus was all on what you do and what you show others and how you are seen. And in that kind of system, love and mercy and grace and authenticity disappear. They have no place. And legalism and pride and oppression run free. In fact, it was so bad that by the time Jesus arrived, he declared that the religious leaders of that day were the farthest people from God of anyone on the planet. In Matthew 23, he speaks about this group. There's not one nice thing he says about them. He says, do what they say, but don't follow their example. Because everything they do is to be seen. It's all a show. They shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And then he said, they literally get in the way of people coming to God. Because they observe aspects of the law, but then they miss the heart of it, never showing justice or mercy or faithfulness. He goes on, they are whitewashed tombs. They look beautiful on the outside, but inside they are full of death and everything unclean. Because outwardly they appear righteous to everyone, but on the inside they are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. This is just a fraction of what he says in Matthew 23. You can read all through, it's the harshest things Jesus ever said about anyone in the Bible. So it's safe to say that Jesus is not impressed with those who play a religious game. On top of that, it's that group that he talks about in Matthew 23 who hated him so much that they arrested him and demanded Pilate to crucify him. So of course in Acts 5, of course God would act the moment he saw that kind of attitude creep into his church. Do you think for a second that God would allow that kind of religion to come into his church? Not a chance. Make no mistake about it, Ananias and Sapphira were casualties in a war for the heart of the church because it's our hearts and our souls and it's our will that God is coming for. It's what he's most interested in. It's what Jesus died for. So our enemy wants the same. And if Satan can fill our lives with all sorts of religious ideas and activities but keep our hearts from ever fully surrendering to God, then he wins. A second look at Acts 4 and 5 You can see this play out if you just look closely. The very first verse we read today was Acts 4.32. It starts by saying all the believers were one in heart and mind. This is when things are good. That all their hearts were unified and together in their mission to live in a way that glorifies God. But there's a change in Acts 5, isn't there? Acts 5 verse 3. Ananias has already conspired with his wife to keep back some of the money and act like they've given it all. And the first question that Peter asked him is this. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you would lie to the Holy Spirit like this? You see, you and I, we have this tendency when we read Acts 4 and 5, all we notice is the outer acts, right? Man, it's really awesome that they're selling what they had and giving to the poor. It's really neat that Barnabas would would sell his whole field and give it all to church. That's commendable, but it's kind of icky 
And weird and sneaky that Ananias and Sapphira would, would lie and try to get more credit than they deserve. That's how we see it. That's how we read it. That's how we ingest and process the story. It's not how God looks at it. God is pleased with what he sees at the end of chapter 4 because all of their hearts are in the right place. And he is not pleased in chapter 5 because Ananias and Sapphira have given their hearts over to something other than him. And all action, all activity, all giving, all living is judged by God based on the heart that it comes from. Look at it again. Both Ananias and Sapphira sold a field they didn't have to. Both, both Barnabas and Ananias sold a field they didn't have to. Both Barnabas and Ananias took money from the sale of their field and gave it to the church when they didn't have to. Both Barnabas and Ananias voluntarily sacrificed from the church. One sacrifice was accepted by God. The other guy was killed. God did this and then included it in his word in order to give every church for all time this terrifying, violent image so that we would know it's not okay to play the game. Because you, I, everyone you'll ever meet who has ever lived has not been created to appease and satisfy God. That's not our purpose. And this is where we get so much wrong. Humans have bought into this lie for our entire existence that we, are, we can and are supposed to appease God. That we're to satisfy him, that I can satisfy his anger, I can satisfy his wrath by just doing enough good things. By just being spiritual enough, a nice enough person, I'll check off eventually enough boxes and he's going to be impressed with me. But the whole point of Jesus on the cross made that irrelevant. Make no mistake about it, we still get our messages confused. We still keep a lot of the focus on what we do. Because it's easier to see. We still zoom in on treating the symptoms of our disease rather than the disease itself. Growing up, I, I grew up in the church culture. I grew up in American Christian culture. And I began to pick up on some things, right? I began to form in my head a list of what good Christians do based on how it was presented to me. And this is what I, this is what I ingested as, as a young person. Good Christians go to church. That's what you do. That's what good Christians do. Good Christians give some money. Good Christians uh, look the part. They dress nice. They, they part their hair, right? Or they tuck their shirts and whatever it is. Good Christians avoid ungodly things. Right? Good Christians don't sleep around. They don't get drunk. They avoid certain types of entertainment. Good Christians pray and read the Bible, or at least they tell people they do. And then that's it. That's the list. You go to church. You give money. You look the part. You read the Bible occasionally and make sure there's no big public embarrassing sin in your life and you're a good Christian and everyone will recognize that and affirm it in your life and they'll speak glowingly about you at your funeral. But the thing about it is there's a group in Jesus' day who did all of that. A group who kept the Sabbath holy and were in the synagogues and temple. A group who followed all of the rules. A group, a group who looked the part. A group who always gave their 10% to the temple. A group who had no public embarrassing sins in their lives and it was the group who killed Jesus and it was the group that Jesus said kept people from coming to God and it was the group that Jesus said were full of nothing but death and hypocrisy on the inside and of course this makes sense think about this in human relationships I've used this illustration for a few years ago but I think it makes most sense here let's say I bought Corinne flowers tomorrow now bring them home to her She's like, oh, that's nice. What were these for? So, well, you know, it's been seven, eight weeks since I've done something nice. So it's, the calendar said to do it. Right? And the rest of the night, I didn't talk to her. I didn't invest in her. 
I didn't ask her about the day. I just sat on the couch, watched the game, ignored her completely because I checked off the good husband box of the day. Does she even want the flowers anymore? No, because the flowers are supposed to be expression of, of love and unity and intimacy, right? And this makes total sense in our human relationships, but we think that that's how we can treat God. Check off box, check off box, check off box, and ignore him with our hearts. We must get this right. We must understand what God is actually looking for from us. And it's not a checklist. It's not an observance of rules. God wants our hearts in all of them. And he moved in such a terrifying way here in Acts 5 because he understood the stakes. He knows what happens. He knows that two tragic mistakes have occurred since the beginning of time. And the first is this. The first mistake is that people confuse religion with God and they walk away from both. What they find religion to be is empty and powerless. They recognize that following a list of rules changed nothing about them, and so they walk away. The second mistake is the exact opposite, and it's just as damaging. Because the second mistake is that some people play the religious game all the way to hell. And all the while, they thought they were good. Because their spiritual resume was just so impressive. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7. He talks about at the end of time, he said these, these people will stand before him and they'll say, Jesus, look at this, man. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all these miracles in your name. Look at all this stuff we did, Jesus. And Jesus tells us that he'll say to those people, get away from me, you evildoers, because I never knew you. And the reason is that we were not created to appease or satisfy God. We were created to worship and adore and glorify and make much of God. And that can only happen when he has our hearts. You must know that God will not judge you based on what you do. He will judge you based on why you do it. You must know that God is not looking for you to be religious. He demands that you give your life, your whole self, your heart to him. And he paid a dear price for it. He sent Jesus to die to pay the penalty for our sins because he knew we couldn't do enough. He knew religion wasn't the answer. Then Jesus rose from the dead and offers us eternal life if we repent, which means that we turn from living for ourselves. We turn from trusting in ourselves and in our goodness, and we turn and give our lives wholly and completely to him. Now he forgives me and now I have eternal life now he has control now I live to make much of him that is the transaction and if you're here this morning and there's anything in your standing with God or your relationship with God that you are banking on what you've done and you're sadly mistaken let Ananias and Sapphira show you the emptiness of that don't keep walking in that air Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Lay down your efforts. Tear up that spiritual resume and give him your heart. It's what he demands. It's the only thing he'll accept. Let's say you are a follower of his today. But man, man, look through your life. Ask God to search your heart and see where your walk with him has become about you. Where is it that you feel the most pride? Where is it that you honestly do things just to be seen? Where is it that you are performing acts in your life because you believe that you are earning God's favor or putting him in your debt? 
Where is it in your life that your heart wants to glorify you and not him? If there's anywhere in that, if he's pointing his finger on anything in that this morning, repent of that. Let Ananias and Sapphira sound a warning bell, loud and clear, for all of us to hear. We cannot play the religious game. It does not end well. We must give our whole lives, our whole selves, our whole hearts fully to Christ and then glorify him alone. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that you gave your church this daunting and terrifying and yet useful example. God, because you knew, you knew that in the process of being your church, in the process of of gathering together and and, and giving uh, sacrificially and, and, and teaching Bible studies and reading your word, at some point we'd be determined to make it about us. At some point we begin to believe that those are the things that get us to heaven. At some point we begin to buy in the fact that we can save ourselves and we can't, Lord. God, you also knew the temptation that followers of yours would begin to, to elevate and heighten things that just aren't that important. We begin to level uh, dress codes and, and, and certain legalistic standards on other people because it's what, easy, it's what is easy and comfortable to us and we're playing the game. God, you gave us this terrifying story to show us that what you're interested in is our hearts. What you judge us by is our hearts. What you judge us by is why we do things, not what we do. So God, if there's one in here today who up to this point have based their entire standing with you on what they do, Lord, I pray that they would find salvation and forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ today when they lay that down and surrender that to him. Lord, if there are those in our midst who, who are believers in him, who are followers of him, and there's still areas in our lives where we play the game, that we think that somehow you owe us something because we do this. We think that somehow we're better than others because we check off this box and they don't. God, show us the evilness in our hearts. May we surrender that to you. Make us a church of Barnabases who just lay everything at your feet joyfully, freely, and with no pretense and no show. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Thank you.